Do you want to unlock the power of God in your life? That's a phrase that you hear from time to time. It's used by some in more charismatic circles, but they're not the only ones, not at all. A simple Google search will show that this is an idea that is tread over a lot out in the Christian world. Here are a few search result titles. Unlocking kingdom power and authority in you. Unlock and develop God's brain power. That's good for midterms. Unlocking our access to divine power. The key to opening the heavens. The key to unlock the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Prayer is the way to unlock the power of God. Faith is the key to unlock God's power. Three keys you must possess to unlock the power of God. Five ways to unleash God's presence and power. Seven keys to help you unlock the power of prayer. It's just more and more locks every time I search, right? These links lead to articles, books, sometimes programs or conferences which make claims and promises to move you into a category of more in your Christian life. More power, maybe more manifestations of some sort, more tangible experience, they would say, with the supernatural outpouring of God. One such annual conference had a promo video back in 2019. It wasn't being held by a heretical church or a cult. It was a church, honestly, that we might go to if we lived in that town. But the conference billed itself as a special time in God's presence because it is, quote, in God's presence that every good thing starts. And then their list of things that might be led to from the conferences, the darkness scatters, cities transformed, nations restored, sons and daughters reconciled. In his presence, we encounter more, it said, and then showed a montage of worship concerts and lots of people laying hands on each other, that sort of thing. Now, listen, I don't list these things to deride the idea of God's power pouring through God's people to transform the world, because that's why Christ has a body on the earth, right? So, There's, of course, on a spectrum in the church of those that are more or less what we might call charismatic. At Calvary Chapel in general, historically speaking, we've been sort of in the middle uh, between what some might call, you know, um, religious fundamentalism, which might say, hey, there is no gifts of the Spirit anymore. There are no miracles anymore. That's all gone and done away with. It all got wrapped up at the end of the New Testament. And then swinging over to the all the way the other side of the sort of gifts spectrum uh, where there is a, a nonstop super emphasis on visible, tangible manifestations of what are called the Holy Spirit's outpouring. So we kind of find ourselves in the middle. We aren't what uh, theologians call cessationist. We don't believe that any of the gifts have ceased or been removed. Uh, but neither do we believe in uh, the excesses of the uh, experience of the Holy Spirit that are sometimes witnessed in the church today. Um, So listen, the truth is, God's power pouring through God's people to transform this world, that is why we are left here on the earth. But so often, what we find is that there is a desire to systematize or synthesize some method, some formula that then promises to generate some wanted result, usually visibly manifested in a feeling or a behavior that we label as spiritual, that we can point out, at, point out and say, oh, look, that's, that's God. God did that because it looked different. It felt different. I sort of had a burning in my bosom, and therefore, I'm going to call that a spiritual encounter with God. That is a tendency that uh, sometimes Christians have. Now, here's the problem. 
that mentality of, of taking our relationship with God and trying to turn it into some sort of formula in order to generate some sort of experience or feeling or manifestation is what we might call it. That is not how the Christian life is described in the Bible. It's not how it's described and it's not how it's demonstrated. We can look at those great moments of supernatural outpouring in, say, the Old Testament, when the Shekinah glory fell down at, say, the dedication of the tabernacle and later at the temple, and we say, okay, well, there, look. God's people had this worship service, and we're going through this holy liturgy, and then God broke out, and there was power and glory, and it was so great. Uh, A couple of issues. Uh, The biggest one is that the church is not Israel, right? I mean, that's a big deal. Um, The church is not Israel. Now, what about Pentecost, though? We've been going through the book of Acts. Wasn't there an outpouring of the Holy Spirit visibly manifested during a worshipful prayer gathering? Absolutely. In fact, it didn't just happen in Acts 2. It happened again in Acts 4, um, a sort of repeat of the Holy Spirit coming and filling the room and, and shaking the place. But in those moments in the book of Acts and in other parts of the book of Acts, like the one we're going to look at tonight, we do not see the Christians working God as if he is a machine or working God as if he is a a formula to be solved in order to get at a certain answer at the end or a certain uh, experience at the end. They're not running through um, a maze in order to experience a particular feeling or a particular result that they decided on beforehand. Now, fast forward to Acts 19, and that's where we find ourselves tonight. What are we going to see? We are going to see incredible outpourings of God's power in a particular city. We're going to see a city transformed. We're going to see lives changed. We're going to see sinners dramatically reconciled to God. And we see all of these amazing things happening that astonish everyone who hears about them. We see the things that are being um, sort of sold and promised to us in these links and in these conferences. Those things that we say, hey, that's what we want. We're going to see that stuff happening in the city of Ephesus. And so the question is, okay, well, then how did Paul accomplish this? How did he unlock and unleash the you know, dynamite power of God in the city of Ephesus? And the truth is, we look at these words uh, in, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to find he doesn't. He doesn't unlock anything. He doesn't unleash anything. As Luke tells the story, Paul doesn't even appear on the stage. If this were a play, you know, being, uh, being acted out in front of us with, with actors and sets and things like that, Paul doesn't appear in this scene. He's not on the stage. He's mentioned, he's referenced by some of the other characters, but we see no effort on his part, no program on his part, no uh, initiative on his part. In our verses, when some characters do take it upon themselves to try to stir up the power of God and unleash him into a situation and accomplish a spiritual purpose that seems good to them, the result is that they get wrecked. They get absolutely torn up, literally torn up. It's a bad scene. They were looking for a particular manifestation of God's power, but in the end, not only did they not help the people that they were trying to help, they are worse off themselves. No closer to Christ, no closer to the real transformative power that is offered through God the Holy Spirit. In the meantime, while they're sort of fooling around with some sort of spiritual chemistry kit, they're just pouring stuff together to see what explodes, God is busy throughout the city doing all sorts of extraordinary work according to his own will and purposes. 
We see in this example that he did not have to be invited to come to Ephesus. He did not have to be coerced or cajoled or conjured in order to work his magic in Ephesus. And if we spend time looking at some of the ways that Christians behave in the church today, you kind of get the impression that God, especially God the Holy Spirit, is a uh, sort of nebulous, sort of withdrawn, a being of power that has to kind of be conjured up. We kind of have to invite him, just come Holy Spirit. And there's a constant invitation and a constant coercion and a constant cajoling. If you would just come, you could do this thing that we want you to do. And after all, that would be great. But that's not what we see happening in the scriptures. Rather, when we see that kind of attitude happening in the scriptures, really bad things happen to the people that are doing that. Now, listen, this is a hard issue. I find it to be a hard issue because on the one hand, if you were here last time, we saw that God's desire for us is that we live supernaturally empowered lives filled with his everlasting abundance. As a Christian, from day one, you are given living water that is supposed to flow like a torrent out of your life, right? And Jesus said, hey, you're going to do the kinds of work that I was going to do, and you're going to have faith, and that faith is going to move mountains. And we see that God accomplishes things through his people that are impossible. And that's not the experience, that's not God's intention to be the experience of one or two Christians, just a few apostles. And God says, I want that for everybody in the church, right? And that that is a present reality for those who have been born again, that we have a supernatural everlasting life given to us right now for this world in addition to granting us access to heaven. But at the same time, while that is the reality of our position in Christ, we do often slip into a pattern of life that feels, on the human emotional level, feels devoid of God's power and presence. Theologically, we know that God is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But what about my feelings? What about how I I, I want to feel his presence in some tangible human way? This is what leads to all those Google searches, to all those articles and books and conferences and programs. They're there because people are looking, right? They're not there because nobody wants it. For example, I'll prove it to you in a way that is hopefully funny. You know what? There are not a lot of articles about how can I give all of my income to the Lord? Enter. Your result returns zero out of zero, right? I mean, there are certain things that people are looking for in their spiritual lives and certain things that they're not looking for. So there's tens of thousands of search results when I say, how do I unlock the power of God in my life? And immediately, boom, this resource, that resource, book, conference, program, speaker, video series, all of these different things, because people are looking. That means that as a people, as a church, at least in America, we're kind of feeling like we need to feel something. We kind of are feeling like God's power is locked away somewhere and he forgot to leave us the key or that he has told us we have to crack a code in order to have it break out in our lives. Now, And what we discover as we study God's word is that there is a difference between living in Christ's power and just feeling something we want to feel. Something, or sometimes we just want to feel something magical that validates us. There, God happened. I went to church and something unusual happened. I'm going to call it God and there I feel validated. 
That happens sometimes, and we don't want that to be the way that we try to approach God, certainly God the Holy Spirit, because that's not the proper way to do so according to God's word. The scene in Acts 19 is very helpful and shows not only that God does not need to be conjured, but it also shows the dangers of trying to make the spiritual life formulaic, trying to say, this is the result I want, especially to feel, and therefore I'm going to operate in such a way to try to make that happen. This passage shows the danger of that, the detriment of that, and how that's not how it's going to work. Verse 11 of chapter 19 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. You got to chuckle at these opening words. God was performing extraordinary miracles. Uh, Your translation may say unusual miracles. Aren't all miracles extraordinary and unusual? Uh, They are. But Luke is making a point here. Something specific and particular is happening in this moment in this city. Now listen, this happens from time to time in God's history, not just in the Bible, but also throughout church history as we look back. Think of Peter in Acts chapter 5. There was a period there where God was using him to heal people like crazy. Even if his shadow fell across people, they would be made well. That wasn't something that happened all the time and in every place. He didn't become the shadow man, right, and, and heal everybody in, in his shadow. I only go out when the sun is, you know, leaning this way. That, that's not what happened. But in a particular time and in a particular place, God worked unusual miracles through him. But Peter and Paul, it's important as we read these passages about them and others in Acts as we see signs and wonders, Peter and Paul were not faith healers in the sense that we hear about them today. There are some who claim that title today, but listen, Peter and Paul couldn't just heal people at will like Superman using x-ray vision, right? Superman can employ his x-ray vision whenever he wants to and then turn it off when he wants to. That's not how the gift of healing works. If it was, well, let me just say this. Those who suggest that they are faith healers and want you to contribute to their ministry today, what a shame that they are not at a children's hospital every single day of their lives and at, you know, at, at, and calling the hospice folks and saying, where are you today? Let me just follow you. They should be the ambulance chasers of our society. If we could just turn on faith healing, as some suggest, um, why wouldn't they be doing that? The truth is, in the New Testament, God heals a ton, right? Healed through Jesus a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. Healed through the apostles and others in the book of Acts a bunch. But they weren't faith healers the way that they're described today. In fact, there are multiple times when Paul was unable to heal people when he really wanted them to be made well. We think of his own thorn in the flesh. He didn't heal himself. Timothy's infirm stomach. He didn't heal Timothy. Uh, We think of when he left Trophimus, his friend, sick at Miletus, he said. He didn't heal him. He was heartbroken at how sick Epaphroditus was. He said, man, this guy's so sick, he is gonna die. I'm heartsick, I'm heartbroken. And he says, but God spared me that great sorrow. And so he wasn't a faith healer. Peter wasn't a faith healer. Neither are the people who claim to be today. What does the verse say? It says, God was performing the miracles. Performing them through this particular vessel at this particular time, Paul, but it was his work and his decision. Why was he doing so? 
We can't know the mind of God, of course, but obviously he decided that Ephesus needed this kind of ministry at this particular time. Now, we know that the city was full of superstition and full of magic and full of occult practices. And the Lord did want to verify and authenticate the message of Paul. Paul was going to stay in Ephesus longer than anywhere else that we know of in the New Testament other than in his imprisonment. Right? He stayed there a really long time compared to all of the other cities that he visited. And so God was authenticating and validating the message of Paul for sure. He was proving that this representative, this apostle was true and that he was different from every other supposed holy man, spiritual person, you know, wonder worker in town. There were a bunch of them. We also see that sometimes in the Bible, God likes to square off against the false gods of man. He did so in Egypt, right? He sent Moses. And he says, go square off against Janus and Jambres. Let me show them that I'm God and that I am the God of all of heaven and earth. We see it when he sent Elijah to confront the prophets of Baal. He says, let's square off. Let's do it. Me versus Baal. Let me show my glory. Let me show my power in comparison to these false gods of the world. The truth is God doesn't only play defense. He plays offense too. Right? And so he went to the pagan swamp of Ephesus and he planted his flag there and he says, we're going to take some ground in the form of souls to be redeemed from the city of Ephesus. We're going to establish a beachhead here. We're going to put a church here that is going to do great things and lives are going to be saved and transformed and people are going to be brought from darkness to light. And so he took the fight to Ephesus in that sense. Now, there's no suggestion that these miracles were Paul's idea or his method to get people's attention. In fact, what do we see him in this section of Scripture doing? We just see him lecturing, rather uh, being in classes in the Hall of Tyrannus, leading discussions about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems, given the context, that he was working up a sweat. He's using aprons, he's using face cloths. He's working up a sweat, probably tent-making, to support the ministry. He is definitely, most definitely, not selling these rags to turn a profit. Can you even imagine the Apostle Paul uh, uh, peddling sweat rags uh, to the highest bidder and saying, plant your seed into my, my, my coin purse here, and then you'll, you'll receive this healing rag? Of course not. Uh, if you get some offer in the mail or on television to buy a prayer rug or some other item that is supposedly blessed by some faith healer, save your money. And help, you know, your friends and relatives to save their money as well if you hear that they're into that. What we're seeing here, according to Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was unusual even by miraculous standards. There is an important subplot, though, that runs through many stories in the Bible that I like to bring out when we can. And that's that our God can use anything for his glory and for his eternal work. Anything. I mean, he's not, he can't use, he's not going to use sin for his glory, but I mean... Anything in the regular life sense, God can use it for his work. Your words, of course. He can use your home. We've seen that in Acts. We can use your singing. We've seen that in Acts. He can use your countenance, the way your face looks. We've seen that uh, in passages like Nehemiah and Daniel, where the countenance of their face was actually used to move the needle of God's work into a new venture, a new opportunity, or to a life saved forever. Even your old dish rags or an old shoebox can be used for the eternal work of God. We love to do the Operation Christmas Child every year. It's this big, you know, magnificent ministry with, you know, hundreds of millions of shoeboxes have been packed now. But if you trace it all the way back to the beginning, a guy just thought, 
I should use some of my old boxes, put some toys in there and send them to some kids who need it. And God used that, uh, an old cardboard shoe box to literally transform the lives of countless thousands of the most desperate children in the world and still does so. God can use your dish rags. I don't know how, but he can. God can use your shoe box. God can use the look on your face. He can use your home. He can certainly use your words. He can use your singing. He can use these things. What did the little boy do when Jesus said, hey, does anybody have anything? The little boy said, I have a couple of barley loaves and I have a couple of fish. And from that, God was able to accomplish one of the most magnificent miracles that are recorded in the New Testament, right? We look at that and marvel. The little boy didn't have to bring some pile of gold. He didn't have to bring, you know, some incredible, you know, one of a kind thing. He just brought his lunch and God used that. God could use your lunch too. I don't know how he might, but he can. And I'm sure that many of you have the testimony of of something that seemed so commonplace or so small that ended up being used for God's eternal purposes in some ways. Now, we tend to identify something that we think God should do in our city or to address some problem, and then we try to convince him to do it, right? That is how David did that, and the Bible said, I think I should build God a temple. Let me get about doing that. And God had to say, hey, listen, no, thank you. Like, I don't want you to do that. I didn't ask you to build me a permanent house. I've lived in a tabernacle all this time and you're not gonna be the guy to do that. But we see even today, there's a lot of ideas for ministry and a lot of ministry that's going on. It's really important that, we're not gonna judge anybody today, but like it's really important that if you set out to be a part of a ministry or set out to start some sort of ministry, is that God's idea or is that your idea? Because again and again in the Bible, when it's our idea and we think God should tag along, it just doesn't work very well. It it doesn't help people. It doesn't help us. It ends up usually causing disaster in some way or another in our spiritual lives. And so even Paul, right, he thought it's going to be a great idea for me to go into Asia. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not allowed to go into Asia. There's other people who are going to go into Asia right now. You're not one of them. And thank God that Paul was submissive enough and obedient enough to say, okay, I won't do the thing that I want to do. It's a good thing that I want to do. It's a godly thing that I want to do, but you said no, so I won't go. And instead, what did he do? Paul brought the gospel into Europe. And that's really helpful for all of us here today, right? There's a direct correlation between you and I sitting here today because Paul said yes to God and no to himself, even when he had a good, godly, good-looking desire to go and bring the gospel and do ministry over here in the East. Now, Paul's not doing that here. It pleased God to bring this little revival to Ephesus, and Paul was simply willing to participate, participate in submission and faithfulness. He's so passive in this passage. He doesn't even appear in the passage. He's just, hey, the Lord has led me to Ephesus. I'm here. I'm preaching the gospel. He's using me to heal some people. He is along for God's ride, not saying I've decided I need to go to Ephesus and God, you need to come with me and do what I think you need to do. Now, here's what happens when we make it our business to plan God's work for him. Verse 13, now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. 
Okay, so these guys aren't Christians. They're Jews who were sons of a priest, we're told. It's not a high priest. Your translation might say chief priest, and that's a better, uh, you know, a better term. It's not a high priest in the official sense that we think of. Scholars believe that these guys were either sons of one of the chief priests who oversaw the 24 courses of the priests, or that they were just lying and saying that they were sons of the high priest to give themselves some street cred. Uh, we remember, remember back a while back, they're on the island of Cyprus, and uh, one guy was saying, I'm important, I'm Bar-Jesus, I'm Elemis, I'm the power of the Most High God. And people were just lying. You know people lie sometimes, right? So we're not exactly sure, but these guys for sure are Jews. They're not claiming to be Christians. Why are they in Ephesus? It's an important question. Well, they're vagabonds. This was their job. They would go from place to place like Doc Terminus in the old Pete's Dragon, getting paid to work their magic and then move on. In contrast, we could ask, why is Paul in Ephesus? He was there by the leading and the permission of the Holy Spirit. So let that, again, be a warning to us individually as we think about how we want to serve God and what opportunities are before us, and let that serve as a warning to all Christians involved in any sort of church planting effort. So often when you, and again, not trying to judge people, but oftentimes when we hear the, we see these promo videos or we hear the news of the new church plant in the following cool city, you know, and and they say, well, why are we having a church here? Because, you know, there's this many people that are unchurched in that city. Every city has unchurched people. Hanford has more unchurched people than we could ever hope to accommodate in our facility, right? We're a little old cow town. So the answer to why are you planting a church in Malibu (laughs) needs to be because God the Holy Spirit told me to go, not because it's Southern California, who doesn't want to live in Malibu? And after all, there are a million unchurched people here. So we need to take this as a warning. There is a big difference between the seven sons of Sceva and Paul the Apostle, but the outside looks very similar, right? Now, we read it and we're like, obviously, there's a huge difference. But if you just looked at their ministries on paper, these guys traveling around doing ministry, this guy traveling around doing ministry, what's the difference? The difference is one of them is actually following Jesus and actually knows the Holy Spirit and the other ones do not. So these guys were using a formula, an incantation approach to their ministry. That was the prevailing method in the region at the time. We're not quite so steeped into paganism today. What's our secret sauce today? Sometimes it's data. Hey, let's do ministry according to data or, um, you know, uh, uh, different metrics that we can measure. Sometimes methods that convert to certain behaviors or phenomena that we like. These sons of Sceva were marrying practices from the world into their spiritual lives and into their ministry, hoping to see a tangible result. Rather than believing and submitting to Christ and actually receiving the Holy Spirit, they were simply trying to harness his power for their own purposes, kind of like Simon the sorcerer earlier in the book. And if you think about it, this is just a horrible uh, compromise on their part. They're supposed to be priestly Jews, right? According to their own resume, hey, we're priestly Jews. You're invoking the name of a false Messiah according to your way of thinking. You think Jesus deserved to die on a Roman cross because he was a liar, a blasphemer, and a false Messiah, but you're gonna invoke his name in order to accomplish some spiritual mumbo jumbo? Let's see how it goes. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? 
And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. These men had no authority because they didn't represent Jesus. If someone came to your front door and shouted, come out with your hands up, and you look out the peephole or you look out the window and you see it's not a cop, it's just some kid with a water gun, there's no need for you to come out. If it's not a kid, if it's just some random dude, you'd probably arm yourself for an altercation, right? And that's exactly what's happening here. These guys showed up and said, come out with your hands up, demon. And he said, oh, my hands are going to be up, all up on your faces as I'm tearing you apart. Now, looking back on it, this is somewhat comical to us, but this does highlight a very important principle for the real world. There are real problems out there, real spiritual warfare, real people whose lives are being ruined by sin while they're being held captive by the devil. If we want to bring true solutions to a life or a city or a nation, only real Christianity is going to make an actual difference. Not formulas, not half measures, not just a simple reformation, not just things that look and feel spiritual. We need the actual work of God, not swaggering out in pride and presumption and sprinkles of paganism like these guys are doing. The good news is that God is so powerful and so gracious that he's able to accomplish the impossible in the most ruined of cities, in the most ruined of places, in the darkest corners of this world through just one person if necessary. Look at Joseph. He saved an entire nation overnight. Look at Nehemiah and the work God did through the, the, the beginning of one man's stirring for Jerusalem. Look at Daniel. Look at the revivals of history. These stories do not start with formulas. They don't start with men devising a plan. They begin with people who know God and believe him and choose to follow his leading rather than get out in front of him. Verse 17, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. When Luke gives a vitals report of the work of God, he does not elevate experience or wonders over the glory of God or the spread of his word. For the individual man in this story, it would have been really great for him to no longer be demon-possessed, but listen, that's not the end goal for that man. Without a permanent intervention in the form of salvation, the exercised demons might just come on back, this time with a few friends in tow. Jesus talked about that. He said, yeah, you know, you can kick this demon out, and if that life is not protected by God, he might come back with seven of his friends, and that man is worse off than he was before. But now we see the fear of God is starting to grip the hearts of the people of Ephesus, and that is a very good thing because it leads to real life change and city change. Verse 18, and many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So they came together. And they came together not to experience uh, manifestations or some sort of emotionalism. They came to get rid of their obsession with those sorts of things. Book burning is generally not a good thing, but this is one we could get behind, I suppose. Instead of gathering as a church and saying, hey, we want to feel a tangible manifestation that makes us you know, feel like something supernatural has happened, they said, I want to have a tangible demonstration of repentance, I'm gonna burn this sin right in front of everybody to show that I'm done with it, that I'm cleansed, that I've broken from this paganism. 
As the Bible promises, the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom for them. As they learned more about what it means to be a Christian and learned more about the word of God and how it directs God's people, they realized, so they were believers. And then as they learned and as they found more of God's wisdom through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they realized, oh, wow, I need to get rid of this weird book that I have on the shelf. They believed God and they believed what he said about certain practices. It's silly to say, but God has opinions. He has stances on things. He's made decisions about what is good for you and what is not good for you, what is glorifying to him and what is outside the boundaries of your relationship with him. We need to agree with those opinions, even if we don't like them at first. We need to agree with them. This is why it matters when there are disagreements over biblical prohibitions or biblical guidelines. God's word has to prevail and be the authority. Not the cultural context, not the prevailing opinion of the day, but God's word needs to prevail. That's what we see here. For example, when someone comes along and says, it's not okay for you to not observe the Sabbath, you have to observe the Sabbath, God says so. We can say under the authority of scripture that they are wrong. We don't have to observe the Sabbath because God has dismantled that regulation. Rather, it was never for the church. And we're specifically taught in the word of God, let no one judge you concerning Sabbaths, right? So that's a negative example of saying, hey, we are seeing where God is putting boundary lines and he does not put a boundary line on the Sabbath for us. But when people also come along and say, listen, the Bible has antiquated and bigoted views on sexuality, so we no longer need to listen to what it says or do what it says. We can authoritatively say, no, you are wrong. The boundary still exists. God's word prevails. That guideline, that command, that boundary was never dismantled. The issues aren't always simple, but they are discoverable as we ingest God's word and study it and allow it to prevail in our lives. As we personally submit to God's word and say in our own lives, okay, I need to burn this book of magic that's on the shelf of my heart because it's in contention with the teaching of God's word, the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to do that. Those acts of obedience can be hard and they can be costly, to be sure. Scholars argue over how much money this was worth, but they agree that one silver piece was a day's wage. So they burned 50,000 days of labor. If we took the average American income, that'd be somewhere north of $8 million. Burned. What do they care? They counted it all as loss. That's a costly repentance. Of course, they were making out in the end, we know that. In Paul's letter to these Ephesians, he talks again and again about the riches they receive in Christ. About eight times he speaks to them about the endless treasures of God's kindness and grace and our rich and glorious inheritance in him. Thank God that they said, yeah, I choose the riches of Christ over this costly sin that I might want to hold on to. Amazing things were happening in Ephesus, but they weren't by man's design. They weren't man's idea. Paul, for his part, is completely passive in these verses. And yet we see the power of God shaking this town up in a remarkable way. As it was happening, we see these believers coming not to generate an experience, not to feel something. They're making it a point to separate themselves from magical mysticism and instead embrace the word of God and have it rule over their everyday lives and their choices. The problem is we want to see God bring dramatic revival. We want God to dramatically transform lives in our midst. 
We want God to work wonders. It's not bad to want those things. We want to enjoy the kind of relationship with the Lord that we see in examples like Paul or Jonathan Edwards or A.W. Tozer or so many other examples in the scripture and throughout history. We want to feel spiritually invigorated, right? That's not a bad thing. Those are good desires. And God does still work in powerful and miraculous ways all over the earth according to his certain timing and his certain planning. It's his design, not not ours. So how do we unlock the power of God in our lives or unlock the power of God in Hanford? First of all, God's never deadbolted the door. He just hasn't. The veil is torn. Paul would say more than once in his Ephesian letter, you have access to God right now. It's not pay to play. He says, right now, you have access to God and his power and the richness of your inheritance. Well, so what about the power? Paul says that as we trust Christ, he will make his home in our hearts and then he will empower us with inner strength through the Holy Spirit by his own glorious unlimited resources, Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. The question is not what we do to convince God to break out in our midst, to use a parlance of, of, of some circles. The question is, okay, do I trust the Lord? Do I believe what he says in his word? Well, we do. I do. So I should see manifestations of miraculous power. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's not what we see in the New Testament. Well, but I want to feel it. I want to feel like something spiritual happened. Listen, God says in his word that if you are a Christian, you have received power that you have everlasting life, that he has given it to you. Our walk with God is supernatural. You are supernaturally gifted as a Christian. You are part of the impossible eternal work of God on the earth. But the when, the how, and the look of it is God's business. Our part is to trust and to obey and to be led, not to design something that we think would feel like a good ride for us and hope God comes along. That way lies in ruin. Not just according to this example, but many others in scripture. How do I unlock God's power in my life? God's power is not locked away. He is with us right now as we gather. He indwells you, God the Holy Spirit. He will never leave you or forsake you. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe what God has actually said? If we believe, since we believe, let's trust him and go along and realize that, okay, Christianity isn't about me feeling something during a certain kind of service. Christianity is about God using every waking moment of my life from my dish rags to my praise for his purposes according to his will. And just walking with him, honoring him, living a life with him in a real relationship. He's not a vending machine. He's not a magic genie. He's not the force. He's your friend. He's your father. He's with you. We don't have to unlock anything. We just need to trust the Lord and not then say, oh, and then we get a manifestation. That, that's, not, that's not biblical Christianity. That's some kind of paganism. That's the magic kingdom, right? I want to feel a certain way. Well, God still does miracles. All the gifts are still available to God's people, still in use around the world. We're not discounting any of that. We want to be as far away from the sons of Sceva as possible. 
And we want to be like Paul. Lord, where do you want me to go? When you go, I'll go and do what you want me to do faithfully.